good to see everybody this morning. Turn to the person beside you and say, you look like you're about an hour short on your beauty sleep, okay? Go ahead and tell them. Before we get plugged in this morning, I just want to um, say hello to some people that are here today. We are honored to have Pastors James and Kamani Dearman today. They are our campus pastors in Heber Springs. Let's give it up for those guys this morning. Thank God. Thank you all for being here. <laughs> These guys are really good friends of ours, so we're so thankful. There's no pressure or anything, you know. So, <laughs> Listen, this morning um, I want to talk to you about a topic that sometimes we just need to think about and revisit and, and uh, just kind of let the uh, Lord reshape us on. And um, so uh, I, I want to talk about um, God being uncommon this morning, how we serve an uncommon God. When I was 14 years old, I just got what was called then a learner's permit. And I don't know if that's still what they call it now or, or not, but uh, basically uh, you, you could drive. You just had to drive with an adult. And so my father came to me and he had a talk and he said, hey, you know, why don't we uh, go and find you a car? And uh, I, I, I knew by the budget that I was going to have to get a fixer-upper. And um, so came down to two cars. We looked and looked and looked. Came down to these two cars that we really liked. And uh, one was a Chevelle Super Sport and uh, one was a Mustang. And so what I'm about to tell you is the epitome of my teenage years, okay? So I asked my father, out of these two, which one would you buy? And he said, I would buy the Chevelle. And I said, then I want the Mustang, okay? And so it went for another 10 years, okay? And so um, anyway, we, we got this car, and uh, it was in terrible shape, uh, this Mustang. The front of it had big mud tires on it. And the back had, had little bitty small tires, and so I drove it home, elevated, and uh, got it home. We gutted the whole thing. We pulled the engine, took all the interior out, gutted it. I mean, took it down to the metal. And uh, we spent the next two years uh, fixing everything on that car and replacing everything. And so we had a lot of fun together. I listened to uh, a lot of my dad's stories about growing up, and um, we, we listened to old music, and I, I laughed at stories that I didn't even think was funny because I just wanted to honor my dad. And so um, I just uh, had an experience with this car. And so by the time I was 16, I, I, was, I was in love with it. I knew every square inch of it, and I was so thankful for it. And we'd put a lot of money in it, a lot of energy in it, and I was just so thankful for it. And so it came with rules, and some of those rules were personal. Some of those rules became public. And so my personal rules were I had to wash it every day. And so at the end of every day, I'd bring it home, and I'd, I would wash it, and then I would dry it. And um, I would even go so far, my mom had a, a lint roller, and I would roll it on the carpet. I mean, I, I would really, really clean this thing. And, um, and then I had a, a rule where I would never burn the tires on it because my father told me, I'm going to buy your first pair, and after that, you're going to buy them. And so I took really good care of those tires. And no one could eat in my car ever. Okay, I didn't care what the reason was. I don't care how hungry you were. You were not going to eat in my car. And so um, what I noticed was, though, after about six months of driving this car, I would notice that I had a cheeseburger in my hand. Or um, those daily cleanings were happening every other Saturday. And the light would turn green, and I'd lay down some rubber, okay? And so uh, things changed on how I viewed the car, and my awe of it became less. I, I, I no longer had for that car what I used to have. I, I, I no longer was in, in awe of it. And the truth is, in our humanity, we lose awe in a lot of things. 
Um, many times we can lose the awe of our spouse. At one point, all of our marriages are mysterious, but you add 2.5 children and a mortgage, and we're tempted to see that individual that we married and made vows to, we can tend to see them as just being average if we're not careful. We lose our awe of them. We see or we start a new job with a lot of zeal. We show up early. We're staying late. We love this job. We're thankful for this job. We give God credit for this job. But you let a year go by. We come screeching in the parking lot 30 minutes late, hoping nobody sees us. We lose the awe of it. And this is not something new to our life experience. Actually, it has been a challenge to every single generation. And so today I want to talk about how can we prevent making God common? How can we prevent losing the awe of God? And so I want to take us to Ezekiel chapter 44 and verse 23. This is a very old passage of Scripture, but this is what it says. They are to teach my people the difference between the holy and the common. They are to teach my people the difference between the holy or the sacred or the separate and the common. And so this this very old passage is telling us that there is a differentiation between things that are very humdrum, things that are going to pass away, things that we don't need to necessarily tether ourselves to, and then there's the uncommon. There are are things that, that are sacred and holy and set apart. And he says... You've got to know the difference between those two things. And I think it's no different in our spiritual walk. We have to get that there are some things in our lives that are very holy and sacred and separate. And we should fight not to lose the awe of of them, including our relationship with God. But I want to start this conversation by putting us all on some common ground. And I want us to look at how easy it can become, even for the greatest of of our patriarchs of faith even, to to lose even for a season the awe that they had in God. So let's visit that for just 60 seconds. Let's, Let's start with Samson. Samson was able to physically tear the gates off of a city and carry them supernatural strength that he had. He killed armies with ease. But there was a day when suddenly he lost sight of the source of all of this strength. And God became very common to him. His strength was no longer viewed as an untamed river that ran through him, but rather as something that he himself was personally responsible for. Something that he could conjure. Something he could control with his own thoughts. And he lost awe of God. The children of Israel, and we talk about them often, but a pillar of fire covered them at night. And there were, of course, children born during this time. So for a 40-year period, there were children being born and saw this pillar of fire with the same awe as you and I might see the sunrise in in the morning. Oh, that's pretty. That's neat. But it was still very common. It was something that was expected. It was no longer the great miracle that it once was because we lost awe of it. We could go through a lot of of stories about the children of Israel. King Saul 
He saw so many sacrifices made over and over and over that there was one point in Scripture that that he thought, I'll just sacrifice myself. I mean, I've seen this done. I don't have time to wait around on, on the priest to get here. Surely it's no big deal. I mean, I'm a king. He's a priest. I know we have our separate roles, but I've seen this done. I know how to do it. And so I'm going to just take control and make this thing happen. He lost all of what it meant to sacrifice to God. David had been elevated from a farmer's son to a famous king, so famous that we're still talking about him this morning. Yet his days of slaying giants had long passed when he looked on Bathsheba and murdered her husband so he could have her. His experience had faded His views had changed, and and his God, pushed aside for a few moments of lust, became very common to him. No longer was he really living on the high of God working through him. But he was established. He had a reputation. He was now made. He didn't need anything. He had lost the awe of God. So how can we combat this same temptation in our lives to make God common? How can we fight this tension in our lives and the temptation to make God just part of our everyday life rather than finding awe in Him? We should all be reminded this morning first that God has to be known, not just experienced. Okay, God has to be known not just experience. When, when I was growing up, uh, we, our, our, our church did what every church did, which was we had re- revival. Okay? Now, if you grew up in a traditional church, you know exactly what I, I, I mean by this. And uh, traditional churches have some signature things, just like we have some signature things. They have some predictability, just like we have some predictability. But there, there were, were, were pews, and, and they, were, they were uncomfortable, okay? Can I get an a, amen, okay? Even as a kid, they were very hard to sleep on, okay? You, you, couldn't, you couldn't just take a nap on the old pew. And so our worship pastor, we had three colored hymn books, and, and he would give you the color and then the page numbers. Very important. Because if you missed the color, you had to just kind of go through all three until you found which song that we were singing. So it's like the red book, page 150. Oh, I want to see him. How many of you want to see him, right? And they go into this thing, and then we sang it. And there was one thing that we did. Um, <laughs> there was one thing that we did. It was called revival, okay? Now, revival was, was typically a Sunday night through a Wednesday night, and we, we would pull, you know, speakers, and the worship team would come up with some new songs, and everybody would get excited. We'd say, hey, well, our church is in revival this week, and we would ask people to come, and, and, and it, it was, it was a, a, a stirring. And, uh, but, but here's what I think about the, the revival thought behind it is that if we create enough experiences in succession, then we can go to a new place in God. Okay, So we're going to create these experiences, and we're going to do enough of them so that we can grow some. But what we ended up creating was a generation of Christians who had a need for experiences. So then I've got to have an experience. I've got to have the feeling like I've been to something. Like I bought a t-shirt and have a bumper sticker and I've got the ticket stub. I've got to have the experience of it. 
And so you ended up with people who wanted more experiences. It wasn't enough to just know God. i got to have another experience. And so what we did in that generation, Sunday morning wasn't enough. We had to have a Sunday night. And I'm not, I'm, not going, I'm not preaching against these things. I'm just saying, this is what happened. History backs it up. And then that, that wasn't enough. So then we want a Tuesday night prayer meeting. And then we want a Wednesday night Bible study. And then all the experiential people fell into a three-day depression because now they got to survive Thursday, Friday, and Saturday before they had another experience. Okay? And so we created an entire culture Based upon our experiences, I've got, I've got to go to church and have an experience. Okay? My assessment of the experience addiction is that in the absence of sovereignty, people will follow hype. In the absence of, of, of a sovereign God moment, people will substitute it and be willing to accept hype in its stead. And so what happens is people run to a mirage and they drink the sand. They, they create something in their own imagination and call it truth. And so the temptation of the postmodern church is to create a memorable event. And so now we are tempted to entertain and entertainment be the takeaway. It's no longer about knowing God, it's about having an experience. Now stay with me, this is where it gets really serious really fast. Matthew chapter 7 reminds us of how significant this is. Okay, And so, verse 22 and 23, it says, Many will say, but Lord, we did many good works in your name. And then I will say to them, depart, I never knew you. So knowing God is more important than experiencing God. Okay? Because here's, here's, here's why. Because when, we, when, when, when these people show up and it says many, many are going to say, but hang on, Lord, we, we cast out devils. I mean, we, we saw people healed. I mean, people walking for the first time and hearing for the first time and talking for the first time. God, we provided an experience of you. These people experienced the presence of God. They experienced the miracles of God. It was, God, we gave these people an experience. How, how can you reject us? And the answer is, because I didn't know you. And so he's clearly trying to differentiate. There is a big difference, an eternal difference in us having a heart full of experiences versus us having a heart that really knows who our God is. This is how we can maintain the awe of Him, to know Him. To know Him. To not chase hype, an event, an experience, the next thing, but to just say, God, I just want to know you. Because you are so vast and so big and so grand that I can spend my entire life discovering you and never lose sight of how, how magnificent you are. I'm in awe of you, God. Let me tell you why it's dangerous to be experiential. Because if God is only an experience, 
then our knowledge of God then becomes limited by the creativity of the people providing that experience. Meaning this, you got to hire the right people. You got to have you got to have the 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 best facility with the best stuff, and it's got to always be cool. Every three months, you got to change something to, to create it. And so this, this would, would mean that even though we love, we love David, we think David is very talented, very gifted. Our whole worship team is very talented and very gifted. But if you are anchoring your faith to an experience, you are limited by how gifted these people are. And that, that, that becomes the end of it. Okay? But when we understand God, let, let's look at Ephesians chapter, chapter 3, and th- this will tell you, this will give you a visual. His intent was that now through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and the authorities in heavenly realms. Verse 11, according to his eternal purpose that he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. We will never fully understand, in in these finite bodies, we will never understand the fullness of what Jesus Christ did for us. But the Bible said that it's his intent through the church to represent the manifold wisdom of God or the manifold knowledge of God. And that that word manifold, when it breaks down, it's simply this, many folds. So if you think about a piece of paper, this is what a lot of us have our experience of God. We, we see him on one plane, one perspective, one thought. We're anchored to one verse. We're anchored to one school of thought, one set of, of, of dogma, one denominational title. And for whatever it is, we, we see God on, the, on this one thing. But this verse tells us that God is many folds. So as, as you are coming up on, on, on the grasp of something great about God, he reveals something new. He can unfold something new to you, a new level of knowledge. And then as you explore that, and then God begins to open it up again and again and again and again. And our Christianity no longer has to be this cute, tucked away perspective where we feel like we've wrapped our mind around something for two or three decades. But God reveals a many-folded, many-faceted uh, approach to who He is. And why this is relevant to our topic this morning is because this is what makes God uncommon to us. We maintain the awe in Him because we're continuing to know Him and see Him and and get a new revelation of who He is as, as we see different angles and perspectives of God. The second thing I want to talk about this morning is this. You can't build a doctrine around a personal experience. A lot of times we make God common because the filter of our faith is our experience rather than the Word of God. The Bible even tells us that we're going to struggle. We're going to have some challenging moments, some challenging times. That's no mystery. So we should not be surprised when trials come. But if you use your experience as the filter for your faith, you will build a doctrine around your experience rather than, a, than finding doctrine in the Word of God. It is dangerous 
to have an isolated moment, a season, and build a doctrine from it. I've shared with you many times, and I'm not going to tell you the story again. I'm just going to pull one point from it this morning. But I've shared with you about how we lost our first daughter and what the enemy destroyed me with in that moment was a whisper. And it was a whisper so subtle that I, I didn't even hear the seed of it hit the soil of my heart. It was very, very subtle. And the whisper was this, God is common. God is common. And this type of language began to come into my, my mind. And it, it, it was this. In this moment, God is no different than the doctors surrounding you. He's no different. Did God do anything for you that was beyond what these intellectual and talented people did? Because people prayed and she died. And people fasted, and she died. And people would come to us and say, man, listen, just feed your faith. We're praying around the clock. And she died. And the whispering, God is common. In the next month, that phrase became an oak tree in my life. It touched the nerves of every, watch, experience that I had ever had and negated all of them. And I realized very quickly that my faith was established on all these experiences of faith rather than a knowledge of God. And so I began to get sick spiritually. And I began to understand that this lie, though, had, had been carried on from generation to generation. Watch in Genesis chapter 3, this is the first time that it creeps up. Satan lied to Adam and Eve and said, For God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. Now, now we've preached this this way for a long time. Oh, wow, I'm going to be like God. That's amazing. I should do that. But the flip side of that is this. If I'm like God, then God is like me. And then we have commonality. We make God common. Suddenly God thinks the way we think. Suddenly God's Emotional construct is the same as our own. Suddenly God would want us to respond to this particular thing this particular way because that's how I would do it. So there, therefore, that must be how God wants to do it. And then we're filtering our faith through the experience rather than knowing God and knowing how, how God would deal with it. The lie of the enemy is to say that God is no different than what our experiences make of him. Okay, now stay, stay with me. So this is what, what it means. For those who have not suffered, it means this. God is a good God of favor and blessing, and he esteems you. For those who have suffered, God becomes this tyrant who is wringing his hands as he considers with unlimited creativity the next way he can wreak havoc on your life. But the stronger lie says God is as people make of him due to their experience or inexperience of him. 
Suddenly God is who I make him based upon what my life has been like. And if we do that, we'll all quit. If we do that, we'll all at some point throw in the towel. Because we'll be so weary and so tired and so frustrated and so confused and so empty. We have to know God more than we experience God. And we cannot filter Him and make a doctrine out of our own experiences. Let me end with this one. The third thing I want to talk about this morning is this. Don't put your hand on what only your heart can hold. Don't put your hand on what only your heart can hold. There's a really neat story in Scripture. And it's the story where King David comes in to becoming king. and He's young, he's vibrant, he's energetic, he's got a lot of zeal. And he's trying to find out what's going on with the Ark of the Covenant. What's happening there? He said, well, it's down at um, a priest's house just about seven miles away. How long has it been there? 30 years. 30 years. Yeah, 30 years. Seven miles away. Yeah. Ahabinadab's house is just 30 years, seven miles down the road. Well, we're going to go and get it. So David calls Abinadab, hey man, uh, we're going to come and get the ark. And uh, he has... Two sons, Uzzah and Ahio. Aren't you glad your name isn't Uzzah or Ahio? And so Uzzah and Ahio are also priests. And so if you read Scripture, you know there are specific rules for moving the ark. You had to use acacia poles. It had to be carried on the, on the, on the shoulders of priests. And typically there was a sacrifice made before it was ever moved. Because there was incredible, incredible presence of God housed inside the ark. But what happens next is so strange. Because Uzzah and Ahio basically become responsible for moving the ark of the covenant from Abinadab's house up to Jerusalem. And so what they do, they're like, yeah, we, we got the ark. We keep it in a barn out back. Just uh, pull the cart up and we'll throw it on there for you. So they do just that. They, get, they hook up some oxen. They get a cart. They back it up. They put the ark on the cart, and they're going to they're gonna do that. They're like, listen, we're, we're, you know, we don't really care anything about carrying this thing for seven miles on our shoulders. Let's just move. There's no need to sacrifice anything. Let's just move it. And in so doing, what happens is the story is the ark starts to move. The oxen stumble. The ark shifts its weight. And Uzzah puts his hand out to steady it. And heaven drops him dead. Here's what I really think happened here. The ark had always been in Uzzah's home. To him, it was like a piece of furniture in the back of the room that everybody had forgotten about. For 30 years, the ark of God was just in their home. It was just something that was kind of there. And unfortunately for them, the holy became humdrum. That suddenly that, that which was sacred became second rate. 
And he no longer wants to sacrifice, carry it on, a, on acacia poles, and he feels like he can put his hand on it. And so sometimes I think when we, if, if we're not careful, okay, and I know this is going to be really strong, but there is a temptation, especially from those of us who grew up in the church, to lose our awe of God because he's just kind of always been there. He's just kind of always been part of our story. It's just, you know, so, some people go, you know, I really struggle to think about even a time when I really got saved or made a decision to follow Christ because I've just kind of always been around it. And if we're not careful, this can translate easily into what's going on in the heart of Uzzah. God becomes very so common and humdrum that we, we do what we do as believers and followers, but, but we've lost the awe of what God has done for us. And there's, there's a greater reality of the one that you and I live in. It's an eternal reality. It's, it's, it's a greater reality. And that is where we need to set our sights so that we do not lose the awe of God. We cannot put our hand on what our heart is supposed to hold. And here's what I mean by that. When God becomes humdrum to us, we look at the things and the giftedness and the talent on our own lives, the good things that are going on, and we put our hand on them as if we did it. We think that we're favored and we're blessed and we got the jobs we have or the intellect we have or, or this or that because we're doing it, because we're smart, because we have some biological predisposition to intellect. But the truth is, it is that God gave you all of it. That if you're good at what you do, guess what? God gave that to you. That if you're a good mom, guess what? God gave you that ability. That men, when you're driven to something, you got a lot of zeal in it, and you put your hand on it, and it works, it is not because you did it. It's because God favored it. Let me give you a scripture so you know I'm not making it up. James chapter 1, 17, every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father. Meaning this, if you ever see anything good in your life, you got to know that God did it. If you see anything in your life and you go, man, that's really working, that is, that is perfect, guess what? God, God gave it to you. Don't put your hand on what God is doing in your heart. But take awe in it. Take awe in knowing God, you are so great. And this, I, I'm, I'm not going to see you through my experiences. I want to know you. I don't want to have another event. I, I want to have a knowledge of God. I, I want to turn the page. I, I want to unfold something new in you. So my challenge this morning is that you explore that. In your personal time with God, in your own meditation, explore where am I? And let God reveal something new about himself. Be rekindled in your relationship with God. I want you to bow your heads with me for just a moment. Listen, we often talk at New Life Church about the, the de-churched people. We often talk about, we want to reach those people who for whatever reason, had a bad experience. They were hurt. They, 
they, they, they were weary or even they made up a bunch of excuses to just try and, and do this on, on their own. So now they're isolated and they're not in any church this morning, but at one point they believed in biblical community. You know what I think is a major component to the de-churched is losing the awe of God. Getting bored in their Christianity. Suddenly the speaker wasn't good enough and the worship team wasn't flashy enough and they would leave an experience disappointed. So now suddenly church is not not for them. Some of you this morning, you might be here and you are what I'll call this morning the pre-de-churched, meaning that you've thought about it, you've thought about unplugging, about disconnecting, about walking away, about trying something different, about exploring a different venue of faith, something that will bring you a feeling, an emotion, an experience. See, you need to know God this morning. You need to know Him. You need to turn a page on the the many-fold side of God. Regain your view on eternity. Regain your view on what He's done for all of us. And that He loved us before we ever loved Him. That's you. I want to pray over you this morning. You say, Kevin, I'm in this place.